2: I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cederholm, and I'm on the ground at Organic Seed Alliance's 8th Organic Seed Growers Conference in Corvallis, Oregon. On February 5th, Friday, following a full day of workshops on all things organic seed, I caught up with Lane Selman of the Culinary Breeding Network and Chef Timothy Wastel of Sweetie Dee in North Portland, what follows is a conversation about a unique collaboration between plant breeders and chefs enabled by the Culinary Breeding Network. Just a note on the low din in the background, that's a swarm of conference goers tasting variety trials and offering their feedback.
3: I'm Lane Selman, and I'm a researcher at Oregon State University, and for about 10 years I've been doing um, a lot of different work, a lot of different uh, projects with organic farmers and um, Diversified organic farmers at fresh market direct sales, so CSAs, farmers markets, um, du- you know, selling directly to restaurants and some wholesale. Um, and I've worked on a lot of different projects. They could they could be about um, insect and disease problems that they're having, and they could be about nutrient issues, but. Oftentimes, um, in the past 10 years, it has been about variety selection. Even if you're talking about, like, problems with disease, we, and it's, like, late blight and potatoes, we go back to, like, well, really, what varieties are you growing? Because it, you could find a variety just genetically that is resistant to that. Um, and so we talk a lot about that. And so in a lot of these projects, it just we just kept kind of going back to that quite a bit. Um, and then... With these farmers, everything that they're concerned about, no wonder what they're growing, flavor is a really big deal for them because it is organic and because it is fresh market and because it is um, directly direct sales to consumers all those three things together means like that that's the expectation that it's going to taste really good right it could
4: it could be the best disease resistant
3: cucumber on the market but if it tastes like water no one's going to buy it yeah (laughs) we saw that quite a bit and and, (laughs) it seems like really common sense but we were working on potatoes and then we said well you know let's bring some breeders in and let's talk to them because I know that there's got to be something that's resistant to late blight is a really big problem still with um with potatoes and um the potato breeders it's not it's um, on their radar to think about flavor because they're mostly breeding for French fries and they're breeding for other markets. And when, um, you, when you have French fries, they're covered in
4: fat and salt and exactly. good. Yeah. Right.
3: So it's just not a priority for them. For, for us, it's a priority. So in a lot of these projects, we started doing a lot of variety trials to see which... Um, varieties performed really well in organic farms because that's what this entire conference is about is that organic farmers have very different needs than conventional farmers and so that we need seed that is bred in those systems um, and so we're growing these things out on different farms uh, we're seeing which ones perform the best and then we got to the part where it was like well you know we're not really evaluating um, in any kind of um, formal way for flavor. Um, for texture, for other culinary attributes. So um, that's kind of when the Culinary Breeding Network kind of came about, and um, it was when we were looking at some roasting peppers, and I knew that there were, I was evaluating them on the field, and I saw some that Frank Morton had actually bred, and they grew really amazing, um, compared to all the other varieties that we were looking at. So I didn't want to be the person that was, um, deciding whether they tasted great or not, because also who am I? I'm an agricultural researcher. So I knew a lot of chefs, including Tim here, who has been Tim Wastel in Portland, Oregon, who is um, a chef and has been um, involved since day one. And, and I asked all these chefs if they wanted to get together and taste these. And so, um, <clears throat> they tasted, uh, raw roasted and sauteed much like you're seeing today so in different applications and then they got to see it the the fruit whole and then halved of these peppers they tasted all of them and we knew which ones they liked the best and then the conversation just kept going because normally in sensory evaluations you would go into like a little white room taste these things and walk away and there wouldn't be this conversation afterward yeah. and so then there was this amazing conversation after afterward where we did have farmers, and we had a couple of breeders, and we had all these chefs in the room, and the chefs started telling us about these things that they wanted that were not on the radar of the breeder, because the breeder is a breeder, they don't work in a commercial kitchen, they don't, they're not that intimate with it, and they just hadn't really had access to that, those
1: stakeholders, yeah, yeah, the the thing that's been just out there in the open has been the open line of communication from the Mm -hmm. very beginning, Um, getting everyone involved in that conversation. Yeah, and that is hugely helpful. I mean, that's it's it's great for us because you know we have an opportunity to we as chefs have an opportunity to uh, continue to focus on supporting small farms uh, while being part of the conversation on how can we make this produce more delicious or different in ways that we'd like it.
4: So, Tim, where do you where are you a chef based out of? Uh, Portland, Oregon. And what where do you work?
1: I work at a restaurant called Sweetie D in North Portland.
4: And is it focused, would you consider it like a farm to table or were you just like interested in flavor? Like what was your, what was like the selling point for you to get more involved in this
1: kind of work? Uh, so I moved to Portland um, during what I guess could be referred to as like the bacon boom. Um, I moved here There's in... was bacon <laughs> boom. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, it was just pork, it's pork nuts. on like every pork on like whole animal on, you know, which, what's the weirdest part of... You know this thing that we can use this animal that we can use on on anything else. I moved here from Colorado um, for produce, so I moved here to be closer to awesome farms with a longer growing season and just people that have you know um, there's this infrastructure here that's that's just fantastic. There's people that have been at it for 25 and 30 years and training you know younger generations to just continue to grow awesome produce. Um, And yeah, I've just bounced around the Portland area um, at a number of. You could call them farm-to-table restaurants. I think that term is is in most in any good food city or in any good food area. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer at this point. I mean, I think it's um,
4: because it's, that's the norm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that's
1: that's awesome. That's huge. It was not like that when I started cooking. Um, but uh, yeah, just really vegetable-focused, um, flavor-focused restaurants uh, with a, a huge you know eye on sustainability and sustainability on, you know, um, getting truly local food. Um, and getting, you know, buying things to the right time and adapting to both what people have on their lists, but having a conversation with folks that are growing the food and um, even now the people that are um, producing the seed as far as, you know, how can we get better? What can can we do to to keep, keep moving it forward and get stronger?
3: Yeah, that was, that was one thing that was really incredible is, uh, you know, I really just thought, okay, I have these finished varieties. I want to know which ones taste the best. I'm going to bring all these chefs in the room. They're going to tell me, and then I'm going to know. And then I'm like, that's the end of the conversation. And I barely even told them, like, what any kind of background about these peppers. And then I knew which varieties they liked the best, but then they started pointing out these traits that they really liked. And then they started asking these questions that, made me think, oh, my God, they really want to know a lot more. Like, they're ready to understand. Like, I always say that, like, they know their farmer, but but behind their farmer is this door that nobody walks through. And that's, like, the seed, and that's the breeding. breeding. And that's what people don't really know about. And so all of a sudden, they're asking all these really – you know, these questions letting me know that they're really interested in. It. And the so door we were open. Right. And then we, like, the next year we repeated it. And that year is when we really started telling them, we started really telling them all about plant breeding and organic plant breeding and, like, the farmers wow. that they already knew. Because we are very lucky in Portland where we have a really nice, tight knit group of chefs that are very, you know it, like you said like they're they're it's, that's it's just like the norm yeah. and yeah. that's what they're going to do they know that if you buy things that are local and fresh that they're going to taste better and then and they're so you know flexible as far as like it's like this is what we have available i mean that was one thing that was kind of difficult because it was like they're like well, whatever i'm like no what do you want and they're like whatever do you have available i'm like no now we're asking you to help what us to you fight. want yeah. cuz yeah. you now have the breeders in the room and the chefs and they can talk together because the breeders oftentimes do not know what the chefs want. The chefs know what they want. And now all of a sudden they're part of this conversation.
4: So what was an example, we'll, we'll continue with the pepper example. Mm-hmm. What was an example of one of the traits um, that the chefs were like, hey, this is something that would be really great or you could use a different crop? Sure,
1: sure. Um, things like peppers with thick walls and square shoulders, um, the thick walls, Hold up really well to things like roasting or pickling, um, and just kind of have more body. Um, and as far like as the,
4: the skin doesn't like peel off and get stuck in your teeth when yeah. you bite <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, that's not what you want. <laughs>
1: um, and then uh, the the squared-off shoulders. Um, that's more of a an ep, more of an economic thing. Um, just as far as yield goes, um, you know, it's much easier to process um, a pepper, cutting it in half and you know scraping out the the seeds and everything, um, and not having to dig around the stem so if it's if it's squared and shouldered up you can just cut it pop the stem off of it and it saves time for you know whoever's prepping the produce and it, it saves you money because there's you know less going into the compost or you know the stock or wherever you put your pepper seeds and stems
4: yeah um so i'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on here mm-hmm. so we're at the organic seed growers conference in corvallis and this is the first day um, we've all spent like a whole day going to these great seed workshops on breeding and seed economics and education. And now there's a bunch of people huddled around this beautiful display of Cabbage and Radicchio. Um, and what is the other, what we've got. So walk me through what, what we've got going on out there.
1: Sure. In, In the room, um, further away, we've got a squash tasting. Um, and while you guys were, um, hanging out on farms and, and going to conferences and things, I uh, was roasting squash <laughs> and yeah. washing chicories and cutting uh, vegetables in little pieces for the tasting. Um, and yeah, in that room uh, we've got a, a tasting of eight squashes, so um, four kabocha types and four delicata types. Um, F1s and open pollinated uh, seed varieties, um, both raw and roasted. Uh, and then we've got ballots to just kind of garner feedback from from the folks that are tasting that, yeah. You know, as far as things that they like, things that they don't like, would they purchase it? Would they use it in their restaurant? Would they would they grow it?
3: And that information that we get back when we do tastings like this for preferences, we match it up with field information. So we know uh, we've trialed all these in the farm. I mean, on our farms, and we know which ones perform well. So then we can advise farmers. We don't want to advise farmers like grow this variety. It, you know, it performs really well in the field when it tastes terrible. Yeah. And then we don't want to tell them about one that tastes really fantastic but doesn't perform well in the field. So then we get this, like, really fantastic, you know... Um, Synergistic
4: kind of mix. Right, and yeah. that is
3: oftentimes, like, not information that has been available.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, so I have kind of raided the table out there, and I'm looking at... Um,
4: these little paper plates that I have labeled according to the code that you have. So this is like you don't have the varieties listed on the tables during the tasting. So mm-hmm. they're they're um, sort of shorthand for. Um, based on the species information, so we've got... Do you want me to explain explain chicory? So we
3: also have a chicory and a cabbage tasting out there, and so one really big focus for us um, and the projects that we're working on in Oregon State University and Organic Seed Alliance are working on a project together to look at crops that do well in the winter time. We want things that can perform well, um, we call it overwintering, so that we can leave them out in the field without plastic. Um, and they're going to withstand the winter time. So we're really looking at this, you know, entire food system for local food um, because we're totally fine. And August is some tipper, and we got everything in the world, but we need things to eat in the wintertime. And so these are chicories that ha- and cabbages that have performed really well in the field, and they're out there still right now. And, and so for the- also,
4: from like an, um, an agricultural standpoint, they need to go through the winter to produce seed. So, yes. they, so they mm-hmm. have to be able to withstand that in order to
3: produce seed in this environment. Yes. Okay. Um, and then also, uh, so for the chicories, we have Castle Franco types, which kind of look like a lettuce, a green with the speckly streaks of, of red. So it's a more mild, a more sweeter chicory. And then we have what we're calling um, bocciolo di rosa. a <laughs> 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 bocciolo di rosa um, and that actually means rosebud and I apologize for my terrible Italian no, even though beautiful. I am Italian
1: it's <laughs> for the regular lean Sicilian and that's how she pronounces
3: it <laughs> Sicilian American and so um, and and these are ones I have performed really well in the field um, and so we're tasting them side by side raw to see mm-hmm. what people think um, and then also Tim has made a really magnificent salad that um, he can tell you
1: about? Yeah, certainly. So um, it was just a, a really simple kind of five-ingredient thing. Um, the bitter greens, uh, some really thinly sliced raw black food soup squash, uh, dressed with a citronette, including uh, anchovies, uh, lemon juice, and some pecorino with lots of uh, cracked black pepper. Um, yeah, just to give, some, some, give the people a little bit of variety and see how um, a couple of sort of oddball <coughs> greens can be thrown together with Something that is even more oddball to most of the people out there, which is eating squash raw, raw. yeah, mm-hmm. um, and tastes pretty delicious.
4: But it, it seems like a really simple preparation too. So it's like something there was then, nothing
1: to it, yet. yeah. I mean, it's it's the hardest part is is not cutting yourself on the mandolin to, to get
4: to the get squash. The, that thin, mm-hmm. Yeah. So now then, like the sheet. So you have this you have this setup where people can mm-hmm. like scoop out a little sample and tate, blind taste them sort of side by side. It's not it's blind in that they don't know what the variety. It's exactly. what they're yeah. actually seeing. They're seeing the chopped up bowls, but they're also seeing the whole heads of radicchio. Exactly. So that they can kind of be like, as farmers, they want to know, like, hey, like, what does this look like? They're not maybe so much into, like, what it looks like in the salad bowl. Well, more might be. But right. But then you have these sheets that are kind of blank with comments. And then sort of you're asking them to kind of rate and give feedback on it. So I don't know. I thought maybe we could do a little oh, bit yeah. of the... So I prepared these little things. So do you want to... Should we go through one of these and maybe... Um, Certainly. Yeah, so... Um,
1: maybe start with the uh, francos. Yeah. yeah, let's little, do it. Okay, so I've kind of
4: broken it up into... Um, I don't think I got everything that was out there, but I've, I think I got big enough pieces that we can, like, rip them up, and maybe... We don't have to do the whole plate, but I thought it'd be fun to... Yeah. To, for you experts to tell me. <laughs> I can I can give my feedback, mm. too, but... So you're right, it's kind of... It's lettucey and in texture. It's more mm. like a, a romaine or something that's, like, mm. a little bit waxier, but it's not super... It's got crunchy, but it's not like cabbage texture where it's like you're really putting some chew mm-hmm. into it. But
3: it's a nice alternative for lettuce in the winter time. You know, yeah. it really is something that um, when you, when you can't have lettuce, you can't have something like that out in the field during the winter. You can, but you, and you taste that little bitterness, that sharpness, right? I mean, that's something. I feel like that's something that um, potentially is something that people will enjoy more in the future, as far as, as definitely as we're working with chefs they really embrace and are excited to have more bitterness in yeah. our diets.
4: Yeah, and bitter, it's, like, one of those flavors that really, like, rounds out. Especially, it mm-hmm. seems like, I haven't tasted it yet, but you describing the salad, it seems like you're really trying to work, like, these other, we've got, like, this squash, which might be a little bit sweeter, and, like, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the other ingredients that kind of play off one another.
1: Yeah, um, mm-hmm. bitter is super important. And, I mean, as far as this, the, the leaf that we just tasted, that's, um... I would I would call it like a, a gateway chicory mm-hmm. or chicory one hundred and one if mm-hmm. there ever was one because it's so mild. Um, it is
4: really mild. And just
1: just the fact that we can have these beautiful these gorgeous leafy greens in February is more exciting to me than Oregon white truffles or Wagyu beef or, or any any of the prized you know expensive sort of sought after ingredients that are all over menus right now. Um, yeah. It's yeah it's it's just gorgeous.
4: Okay, can we we try it? Let's do... We'll just work our way through Mm -hmm. this plate here and see. Um, This already feels like it's a little bit... It feels thicker Mm -hmm. when I rip it, when I'm
3: ripping it apart. Um, mm -hmm. That one, my piece at least, was more bitter.
1: Mm Yeah. Much crunchier, and much more Mm -hmm.
3: bitterness, yeah. Yeah, thicker. Leaf.
1: Darker color, too. Mm -hmm. That one must have been either an outer leaf or... Uh, just thought the entire thing was a little bit darker across the board.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: That it almost has like the oxal. And it might be because I got a stemmier piece, but it has like the oxalic acid kind of flavor that you sure. get from like a Swiss chard and a spinach. Or mm-hmm. the other one didn't. Of course, we're not getting like you said that we might be eating an outer leaf versus an inner yeah. leaf, so mm-hmm. it's not like a true side by side. But
1: yeah, it's fine. I mean, you can taste the difference. It's it's right there. Yep. And if they were in the same salad mm-hmm. bowl, I mean, it would it would look like it came from the same plant.
4: Yeah, yeah. And then we've got this final one which is a tiny piece. I didn't I didn't really prepare us for it, but and again this already seems thinner.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm. That one is actually a little sweet and kind of tangy. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Very sweet. Very, very sweet. Mm-hmm.
4: And so now okay, so let's pretend that we were to submit these comments on we've just gone through mm-hmm. the tasting and we've We've determined, you know, some textural things, some taste things. What's, like, the next step? Like, you're going to go back and collate these comments? Like, how, who, like, what happens when, after everyone folds up these
3: sheets and walks away? Right. Well, we like to go through and we tally them up. This is a really large um, tasting, so a lot of times we don't, um, like, statistically analyze these or anything. This is kind of more about engagement and having people really kind of be exposed to some of these foods, some of these crops that they might want to grow, and also... Um, and then also, like, taste side by side, different varieties. Because often, actually, some of these Castle Francos started from the same seed source and there's been doing breeding and selecting, and it's come out of the, you know, from an original population. So, as people's actually, they're their parents kind of they're, are
1: probably in the field right now. <laughs> yeah, they
3: they are like their their values and their preferences of the breeder are actually reflected in these because a lot of them have started from this one variety that comes from Italy and they've just done their selections and you can look at them in the field and you can taste them and taste differences just based on the individuals that have decided what they're going to say or not. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty exciting. So with this kind of thing, we're just trying to get like a really quick glimpse at like, because a lot of times we'll go, we'll go back and then all of it, you know, we'll have to say like we have 200 of these ballots and we have 150 of them best flavor the same one we want to know that Yeah. you know I mean we've already chosen these based on how well they performed in the field but then you know we really want to know what people's it's a really broad section of I mean this is the Organic Sea Growers conference so it's people that come to that but it is a lot more people than we knew, normally have we have like a very size. focused yeah. you know like with all of our chefs maybe we would have 25 or 30 people at tasting but there's 500 people here tonight yeah. and so that is a lot of people to tell us and if we have an overwhelming response about best texture best flavor or best appearance then we if really it, want to know that
1: yeah if it turns out that you know cf3 is is mm-hmm. the winner by 75 percent, then we should yeah. do something with that information
4: yeah um so that does that um um do you have any do you have any clear predictions based on this little the sampling that you did <laughs> i mean do you i think they all tasted pretty good
3: i so think the, that people have different preferences too i mean i do feel like some people are like um not really into bitter yet I feel like and I know that no. I've gone to a restaurant in Portland that uses somebody's, uh, I'm not going to name any names on all these, uh, <laughs> but they do use a, a local chicory uh, grower and he has done a lot of selections on his own farm and he's done it he's gone so far in the way of selecting against bitterness that mm. to me it's not bitter enough. Yep. So actually when I tasted these three, CF1 was sort of, like was the bitter it had, there's bitterness and it was a level I liked the CF2 yep. was a little too much and then CF1, I mean CF3 did not have enough yeah so that's my preference but everyone you know there's a lot of different people and that's why we like to have all this information because then we can like create multiple varieties for you know because there's a lot of different preferences out there
4: yeah and that helps with like yeah just tailoring and it keeps even though Mm -hmm. you're not trying to like um, tunnel in the genetic diversity you're just trying to have better Mm -hmm. um, information about how to describe the attributes and market it to different wants and needs based on like um, you might want like a thicker skin, like a thicker leaf right. for a totally. certain preparation, totally. and a thinner leaf for another, and yeah. that kind
3: of thing. We do a lot of that kind of work too, not just with preferences, but with descriptives. And Tim is really involved in that. So, like with the squash right now, we do a lot of work where he's tasting squash and not really talking about his preferences, but
1: yeah, there was just describing
3: zero. the different attributes that it has.
1: I'm trying to figure out yeah, it, just exactly what these different squashes taste like, and it could be. You know, there were days where I would taste um, four different kabocha types, and it, it'd be easy to say, "Yeah, it's a kabocha squash." They all taste—they all taste the same. Um, not true, <laughs> at all. Um, drastically, drastically different. Um, and yeah, just kind of going down the road of um, trying to better understand them and trying to be able to better describe them, and, and you know, know exactly when they're ripe and when they're not, um, yeah. so that we can sort of have that platform to to use to teach other folks to, to to understand these.
4: when you're doing um these taste trials do you think it matters much um with, with squash particular i was thinking in terms of ripeness so like do you, are you doing them all grown like like the cf3 for example are all of those when you're doing a tasting of that are they coming from the same <clears throat> grower in the same field so it is so it yes. could yes. see like the growth like um like i was talking um I don't know how much, I mean, it does matter because you have different nutrients in mm-hmm. your fields. Like I was recently talking to a chef um, down in South Carolina who's working with two very different heritage breed pigs, but they're coming from the same farmer and have right. the same diet. So even though they have different right. fat profiles, they really taste very similar, right. more same. based on the feed versus, so it seems like that might be right. part of it too, is if like the squash, for instance, if they're all... Yeah. Um, you know, coming from someone cured them the same way or the same mm-hmm. length of time, they might have a different flavor than if they were right. cured more optimally or less optimally. And
3: we're minimizing all those variables so that we're looking really at variety because flavor has is, is genetics times environment always. And so particularly like with cabbage, and if you stress it, if you stress cabbage, then it throws out more glycosinolates. And mm. so that is what... Makes cabbage taste um, mustardy yeah. and strong, yeah. and so if it's stress, and you can stress it if you like that, I like that <clears throat> flavor, so you can stress it, and you can make that. So, but so we try to minimize all that noise, so that we're actually only looking at ver- like variety by variety, and that's of it. The yes,
1: thing. and yeah. that's it, That's I guess more more toward the the preferential tasting, so mm-hmm. right because the, yeah. the the squash the um the the sensory analysis sort of descriptive ones. We've done two rounds. Um, we did um, the first round at the tail end of 2015. That was in November, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, just finished up the next round um, a couple of weeks ago. And those, um, like all of the bricks and the dry matter was taken at OSU and um, Alex Stone. That's Oregon
4: State University. Yes,
1: yeah. Uh, Alex Stone, who sort of is spearheading the, the squash side of that, um, has got pretty meticulous notes on the um, how they came about, I, I mean, whether they were dry farmed or irrigated, mm, how, many, yeah. how many days they spent mm. on the vine, um, how long she, they were cured for, mm. like, what, what environs they were cured under. Um.
3: She even marked, uh, they tag them pollination dates so they know exactly how <laughs> old they <laughs> are. Yeah, these, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, you can, this is, like, re- science researchers, so they're pretty, they can get pretty anal about, like, yeah. when trying to, we're really trying to make sure that we're just looking at variety differences. So trying to minimize all variables.
2: Yeah.
4: Because
3: they can't, you know, dry farming, squash, potatoes, a lot of things can make things taste very different.
4: Because it alters the, it plays with the
2: sugar, starch? How, like why
4: does it It can make concentrate
3: it flavors a lot more. Yeah. Um, particularly um there's a huge, you know, not huge demand, but there's a lot of demand for people that are, like know about that. They would prefer, like the a lot of them prefer,
2: yeah.
3: you know, tomatoes, tomatoes, a lot of times it makes the, the skin thicker sometimes, yeah. um, but it does concentrate flavors because they don't
1: have as much moisture content. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Perhaps not the best, I'm going to pick this tomato up and eat it kind of a thing, but for mm-hmm. a sauce tomato or something that you're going to process. Mm-hmm. It makes a difference. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, it sounds like you've got, like, the best, the best of the, the food geeks. You've got, like, the scientist researcher geeks and the chef geeks, and they're coming together. <laughs> it's really fantastic. I
3: mean, it seems like it's taking a long time, but, you know, um, it's really exciting. I think that both sides are just completely excited and flustered to be in the room together. You know, yeah, it the, is, the, like, the... getting so much out of it. It's, like, it's such a symbiotic relationship, I feel
4: like. So what, like the end? So you've um, you've done the tastings, you've got the chef's input, you've got the researcher's input, and then where does the farmer come in? Are you where are these varieties? You've once once you've done this extensive trialing and got all this great feedback, like will these. Um, how do these end up in on-farmer fields in a commercial sense?
3: Well, so first, before they've come to the far, the, the chefs, actually, the, they have been trialed on farms. So we are only bringing things to the chefs that we, I don't want these chefs to know about things that don't grow well because they're mm. going to want that. And I, <laughs> and I don't want them <laughs> yeah. to start demanding things that is like, you know, wanting things that we really don't want to do. So it's uh, the, 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 the things that are out here today and that you're looking at, we know grow well. For the farmers. And then, yeah, and then that's when, well, so the Culinary Breeding Network, for instance, has an annual event called the Variety Showcase. And um, and that's where a lot, like, a lot of farmers and chefs, produce buyers and breeders all get together and they hear from one another, talk to one another. And that's where a lot of change happens and a lot of um, farmers start to then see, okay, there's a lot of farmers, I mean, there's a lot of chefs that are really interested in this variety. I'm going to start growing it. And so we're seeing a lot of varieties being picked up and grown because they see that there's demand for that.
4: And then where, but where are they getting picked up and grown? They're just wherever, whatever seed distributor is already offering them, or do you have partnerships with specific seed
3: oh, yeah. companies or yeah. that sort of end? At, at that at that showcase, those those seed growers are there. So we have the plant breeders, which oftentimes are at, at public universities, but they often are with seed companies. So the seed you know, so the seed company will have a booth and they'll be showing off what they're working on, or that people get to taste what they have. Um, And so they are oftentimes, so there's two different things that we do is we have people look at finished, available varieties, and that's what can be picked up immediately. And then they can say, okay, I'm going to start growing this because it's available. And then we also want to have this where we bring um, people into the conversation really early on in breeding projects. So very, because breeding takes a very long time. And so if you want, you you know, if Jim Myers from Oregon State University decides I'm going to work on a, a... A pepper, You know, like he's working on a mild habanero pepper. And if he wants to work on this pepper from the beginning to the end, it's going to take maybe 8 to 10 years. So we want to bring people in really early on because those breeders are making a lot of decisions. And they're kind of a lot of times guessing what people want. And so if we have at the beginning F2, F3 generation Mm -hmm. um, where there's a lot of diversity still, and that's diversity in, you know, color, um, shape, size, all these appearance things, and flavor, we can have people looking at that and tasting that. Then he can use that information in his breeding. Sh- Tim is actually Build doing that. Build a really
1: really that. strong
3: foundation. Yeah. yeah. And Tim is actually doing that right now with Adaptive Seed where they are, they have a it's called a land race, and it's a, it's, like a, it's a population that's very, very diverse that someone who's like a homesteader would grow because they want a lot of diversity. And then they can sort of select the genetics yeah. that are interesting. To right. And so that's home. exactly yeah. what we've done. Yeah. Just, yeah. just
1: literally walking through the fields and, you know, looking at things and, and touching them and, of course, tasting them and being like, I like that one. And, and here's why I like that one and, and flagging them. Um, and they would then save the seeds plant another batch um, and we're actually talking about going back down there we talked about it last night I think like next week I'm going to be down there so
3: so yeah Tim's been doing a lot of selections for so this is a this is a, um, a kale that has uh, brass, uh, it has napis uh, different species crossed into it, so it's very, very tender. And so they have all, you know, they have so much diversity. And then they have, you know, purples, and they have greens, and they have very savoy and very curly and frilly, and shapes. all it's, these leaf it's shapes. A of,
1: of it, shapes and, and yeah. colors. It, it's, yeah. it's amazing, the yeah.
3: and they sell it like that. But then
1: they're having—it's it's the it's
3: called gulag, gulag stars. stars
1: yeah. Gulag
3: Stars Kale. It's a very tender, really nice kale. It came originally from Tim Peters, who's an old breeder. And um, An adaptive season. They're an Oregon based Yes. Company. They're in Brownsville, yeah. Oregon. Um, and they and so Tim is pulling out of that several different directions for them to create new varieties. Cool based on you know what he sees which is very different from what they see and what a farmer sees so that we need a lot of different eyes on this because there's a lot of different desires
1: and it's so great when there can be you know three or four or five sets of eyes on things at the same time and there's someone that's a culinary professional there's you know a researcher there's the people who own the property that are you know um, producing the seeds um, and and you know breeding for what they see fit um, it's it's just fantastic. I mean, you can learn a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, I, w- I could point to one and and not look at it quite closely enough and say, "Andrew, I like that one." And he's like, "Really? He's like you like kale with hairs on it?" Like, no. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I guess like, no, I don't. I don't, I don't want yeah. hairy to kale. <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: um, so um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to. Um, take me on this little culinary breeding tour and where can people find out more about the work that you guys are doing
3: Uh, there's a website called culinarybreedingnetwork.com also on Instagram culinarybreedingnetwork um, quite active on Instagram
2: It's time for a short break. When we return, we'll hear about the Culinary Breeding Network from a plant breeder's perspective. Stay tuned for Frank Morton of Wild Garden Seeds in Philomath, Oregon, who presented on a panel at the conference titled Community Plant Breeding Engaging Stakeholders Across the Food System from Eaters to Breeders.
5: This is Chris Howell from Cain Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show, in our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. I started out as a salad green grower for restaurants. And as part of that, I developed close relationships with the chefs that generally owned those restaurants that I worked with. So when I was still learning to be a plant breeder, I had the opportunity to always be talking with chefs about how they use the salad greens and uh, garnishes um, and the seasonal aspects of the food. And it was always a back and forth between me and the chef, usually through uh, letters that I would write each week with the salad greens I would send to restaurants. So, really, the chefs were consulting with me, to be honest, most of the time. Because my experience has been that most people don't know what is possible in a plant breeding program. And so, at least in the beginning, it was mostly me showing uh, the eaters, the chefs, what was possible seasonally uh, within different species. So that's how I developed most of my varieties to begin with. It was a chef collaboration. But if the chefs were not really coming to the farm on a regular basis to look at the breeding material, they would come occasionally, they would see all the possibilities, their eyes would bug out, and they wanted to try everything. Really, they wanted something new. They wanted something new. And once you've worked with chefs for a little while, you begin to know what the markers for quality are and tenderness, Flavor and color, and what catches the eye of the person who's going to eat it. So, and novelty, once again, uh, all chefs want novelty. Uh, novelty sells, and chefs are in the business of selling food. <coughs> so I can only say that really, up until Lane Selman began to take my varieties and take them to chefs and show them the different varieties that I had. Up until then, the back and forth between me and the chefs was mostly a one-way thing. Now it's different, and this has really opened up a lot of opportunity for uh, helping sell my varieties because the culinary breeding network uh, essentially creates exposure that I would never be able to create on my own. And, you know, lucky for me, I know that a chef wants a smooth pepper. (laughs) They didn't have to tell me that for a roasting pepper because I have this sort of uh, consciousness from working with them all this time. So, how do we get them involved earlier in the process now? Now that I have this closer two-way thing, it's really nice to have them come to the farm and see all the variety. And it piques their interest. And I can just see by the look on their faces what attracts them, just looking at the beds. And often what attracts the chef attracts me, also. So that gives me confidence in my own taste. But there's nothing like having a chef point at something and say, that's what I want, just on the basis of the appearance. And then, and then there is the tasting. The first we eat with our eyes. The other thing about plant breeding and food availability for chefs or others is if the plant is not a good crop, it doesn't matter how good it tastes. And this is what I tell chefs over and over. If, it, the, crop, if the variety cannot be economically grown in an appropriate season in a profitable way, nobody's going to grow it for them. So they will never get to taste it. So the plants need to have disease resistance, agronomic qualities that make it a profitable crop. The yield needs to be decent. It needs to have seasonal niches that it fits into, especially niches that are not currently filled. And if all that is true and it tastes great, that's a good variety. But you can't just start with flavor, which is what a chef would always want to do first. They don't understand the farmer mind or the farmer situation enough to actually do uh, some of the more critical aspects of plant breeding. But they know what they like, they know what they like to look at, they know the taste that they like. So it's really a complicated kind of thing, and it is like a conversation. And I would say it's a conversation. And the earlier you can start the conversation, the better. But it is a conversation.
2: Well, that's another episode of the Farm Report. Interested in hearing more? Tune in on heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening.